Hello, I'm Hank Green, and welcome to the NerdCon Stories podcast, where we bring you the discussions, Q&As, and panels that we recorded during the first-ever NerdCon Stories, which took place October 9th and 10th, 2015, in wonderful Minneapolis, Minnesota. In this episode, you will be hearing the panel, Tropes, Misinformation, and Stereotypes, How to Identify and Avoid When Writing Outside Your Experience. Frequently, the thing that can screw a writer up the most is the thing they think they know. When writing outside your experience, these inherited bits of misinformation can creep into your fiction without your awareness. How do you spot your own blind spots and prevent yourself from perpetuating stereotypes by accident? This panel was moderated by Mary Robinette Kowal and featured M.T. Anderson, Jeffrey Craner, Liz Hara, Taya Abret, and Maggie Stiefvater. Enjoy. Also, I wanted to let you know that tickets for NerdCon Stories 2016 are now on sale. NerdCon Stories will be taking place October 14th and 15th, 2016 at the Minneapolis Convention Center. Go to nerdcon.com to get your ticket now. We hope to see you there. So now our lovely panelists are going to introduce themselves while I try to make sense of my list. Great. Will you start? Sure. I am Jeffrey Craner. I am one of the co-writers of the Welcome to Night Vale uh, podcast. Oh, that's, uh, that's it. The end. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm Liz Hara. I am a puppeteer and writer, and I just started writing for Sesame Street. Uh, I'm M.T. Anderson. Uh, I wrote a book, uh, Feed, which is probably my best-known thing, and uh, we were asked to talk, say our most recent thing, which was uh, a nonfiction book called uh, Symphony for the City of the Dead, which just came out a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm, I'm Taya Albrecht. I'm a Yugoslav-American author, and uh, my, uh, my novel is The Tiger's Wife. It came out a few years ago. I'm Maggie Stiefvater, and I wrote the Shiver Trilogy, <laughs> the Shiver Quartet, and the Raven Cycle. <laughs> and um, I guess I'm best known for setting John Green on fire last night. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Mary Robinette Kowal. I'm probably best known for my novels, The Glamorous Histories, which are basically Jane Austen with magic, um, or for Baron Munchausen last night. Um, <laughs> if only I could make a career of that. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm also on the podcast Writing Excuses, which is specifically for uh, writers uh, who want to get better at their craft and teach a workshop called Writing the Other with uh, Nisi Shaw and Tempest Bradford. Um, so, how do we do this thing? Um, the first thing I'm going to start with are, are actually uh, common stereotypes that we often see. And the reason I'm going to start here is that one of the things that I think helps when, when starting to go into this is to identify the problem areas from the get-go. So what are some of the, the common stereotypes that you see, either something that you had to fight to avoid when you were working on your own work, um, or things that you see in other fiction that make you want to head desk? <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll just, jump. Yeah, just, you guys just jump in and talk over each other. I will talk you down if Great. you... If you, awesome. if you uh, if you're yeah, just push this away from me if I go on. Um, I oh, mean, believe I, me, I have, a, I have a ruler. Great. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say something that I've noticed in, in some of my older writing and something I'm very conscious of, and I, and I cannot remember the writer who did this a couple years ago. It posted on BuzzFeed. It might, I might be misattributing it to Ashley Ford, but it was, uh, they did a, a really funny bit where they, it was, if we described white people uh, the way we describe people of color, and they talk about, and it really put the, the way we describe people of color and how they look based on food products, mm -hmm. um, chocolate and olive and things like that. And uh, whereas when you put that on white people, they started, you know, the humor of it was uh, the idea her legs were beautiful like mashed potatoes. And um, <laughs> it was really great. And it, it was, yeah. Undercooked fish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, halibut. And um, yeah, so I think something like that, like there's a lot of coded language that gets uh, not 
discussed or talked about or noticed, and it just kind of flies under the radar, and I, uh, for, especially for white people. Uh, so I come mostly from children's entertainment, and it's always the boy characters have very interesting personalities. It's like, this one's the really athletic one, and this one's the engineer, and this one's the girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Girl's not actually a type. It's yeah. Do other stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, like on uh, Gilligan's Island, you know, the introductory song, you know, the uh, the millionaire, the, the, the professor and Marianne. You really yeah. can't run out. <laughs> they run out. She's just a Marianne. Yeah. yeah. Well, then even the professor and his wife, or the, the millionaire yeah, and, and his, his wife. wife. Yeah. She right. doesn't even get a name. The movie star, the yeah. professor, yeah. and Marianne. We just, yeah. She got stranded there. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But I would say that, especially in genre fiction, there is. Uh, um, you know, I mean, there's a strong pull towards, uh, towards uh, tropes of one kind or another because people are expecting certain things. And it means that, you know, like one of the things when I was a kid, I could already detect uh, that a lot of um, fantasy novels, for example, were very much written um, for boys at a particular time in their life and as a result had a particular relation to masculinity, which, which always bugged me. And what I, I mean, uh, that sounds abstract, but I mean, let's, let's be frank. We're talking about a genre in which Typically, you know, especially in the late 20th century, you had young male characters with like giant staves who saved the world by blasting gouts of white fire out of that stave. <laughs> or, you know, if, that, if it's not that, it's like, no, 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 don't worry. It's, I have a giant sword and it has, it blasts white fire too. Or um, if that's not obvious enough, I ride a dragon. There's a giant serpent head rearing up. And I save the world in, there's, it's almost like there's this sort of psychosexual thing that goes on, I think that where you are providing for your audience a kind of a, a feeling of potency and power that becomes its own, you know, this, its own set of tropes and stereotypes that are played out in all sorts of ways, especially then how women relate to those male characters. You know what I mean? And I, even as a kid, that, I mean, I didn't get the, you know, the, the phallic joke yet, but I, I feel like even as a kid, I was very aware of the, um, of the kind of the gendered nature of that, of that genre at the time. And I'm very glad that that has actually shifted a lot in the new millennium. Um, I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that um, something that, that has always uh, really struck home with me is like the, the notion of the rescued female, um, mm -hmm. which, which again is one of those that, that is definitely being overcome now, um, but also, now uh, and and this is this is this is sort of more complicated to explain. So hopefully I do it right. I I I've I've become more suspicious also of the spunky female heroine whose only uh, marker is that she's spunky, and and that is her identity. Like she's she's a woman. So it, but the only thing about her is that. Well, she's a little bit different from what women are. Supposed are we talking to be. about the Lego Movie or? <laughs> we could be. <laughs> And many, many others. I, I'm really psyched out here because Taya is taking notes. <laughs> and so you already know that all of her answers are going to be 60-point answers, and mine are going to be like 10-point answers. <laughs> so I have a huge problem with the way that OCD is portrayed in media because it's like monk. It's always jumping from sidewalk pavement to sidewalk pavement. It runs in my family, and it's not crippling by any means if it's controlled, but it never, in my experience, looks like that. I mean, I know that that exists out there, but I've never met any OCD person who looks like that. And so the idea of getting that across there and not naming it in the book is really important to me as well, so it's not an issue book. And then the other thing that I really cannot stand is when the only queers that we get in a book are the uh, perverted villains. And so that's another example of their perversion. And they just also happen to be into someone of the same sex. Woo! <laughs> so this is, this is going to segue over into the, um, the idea that, you know, the, aren't all stereotypes based on truth? Aren't there, out there somewhere, there's a spunky girl? <laughs> um, but, but it's, you know, and I think that we can all laugh at that and, and say, clearly, not all stereotypes are based on truth. Um, but the question is that, do stereotypes have a useful place in fiction? Is there ever a point at which it is useful to use a stereotype? I'm, hmm. gonna, I'm gonna say. I mean, I, I, my opinion on that is 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 
know other than like to acknowledge the stereotype in some yeah. way where you're t subverting it or you know taking it on I mean I think oftentimes stereotypes appear not because somebody says wow this will be really useful right here it's mostly because they just didn't think it through yeah. it's usually just basic laziness uh, so I think that uh, yeah so I, I don't think no I, don't, I think a lot of people who use stereotypes oftentimes just are completely oblivious to the fact yeah. that that's what it is. Yeah. Um, it's not a, a writing tool, it's just lazy. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would agree that unless you're doing commentary on it, I think mm -hmm. that's a very good point. And uh, I think, especially in comedy writing, they can be really fun to play with. Um, although, of course, you always have to be really careful that you're punching up. I think that's the phrase that we use a lot. Um, or punching laterally, I guess, if you want. Um, just depends on the character. But I think it is a really great way of pointing out that these stereotypes exist um, and just making sure that the commentary is look at this idiot who has these weird beliefs. And, and I think it really is actually a great way to start that conversation. So I think it actually does play a really useful role to identify the stereotypes. I totally agree with that because I think stereotypes basically come from shallow observation, which is also called shitty writing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so a stereotype is if you look at a large group of people and you think that you see a pattern, and so you just copy that pattern when you put it down. So in one of my books, the rich dude wears boat shoes, and obviously a lot of rich dudes do wear boat shoes, and it becomes this long-running joke, but the point is that he is not defined by the boat shoes. I can't believe, see I told you 10 point answers every time, like, anyway, so yeah, I think that's just, it's important to remember that you're looking at a shallow observation if it's a stereotype, and then dig. Yeah, yeah and, and the, the point about it being lazy writing, I think one of the things that, that happens to a lot of authors is that they have a lot of blind spots that they have internalized from watching fiction, and, and then they just regurgitate to those things. So how do you go about identifying your own blind spots? So that you, you know, because you may be putting something in and you think it's all oh, fresh and original, but it is in fact a stereotype. And while you're upon, I'm going to riff until one of you jumps in. <laughs> I mean, I'll, do you want it? Yeah. Fine, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. No, I mean, I, th I think it's a matter of like just reading a lot and listening a lot. Because I've definitely done the thing before where I, exactly what you said, oh, this is a really funny joke, I'm really doing a thing, I'm really punching up or punching laterally or whatever. And then you, you realize later when you, I don't know, just through Twitter or Tumblr or, or just reading more things, you're like, oh man, a lot of people make that same joke and it's really lame and, and it's not helpful and it's yeah. actually kind of hurtful. And, and actually lame is an ableist word and... No, oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate that. But I, no, I think, I, well, and I think it's that thing of like listening to that. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, I, I, I honestly didn't even know that. And so it's really good to hear and you try and take steps to uh, make sure that you're taking those things on. Um, but I think, yeah, listening and reading a lot. And if you start hearing those same jokes over and over, even if it's not a hurtful joke, like, I don't know, the joke has been played out, let's find something new. And I think also just keep presenting your work to other people because on a page, everything is perfect <laughs> and then you know you put a show up and people respond to it in ways that you would never predict um, so I actually am working on a new play and there is an Asian American character who is pretending to be a Native American so he spends most of the play just embodying these really terrible stereotypes and it's making my audiences really uncomfortable which is what I want, but just kind of figuring out where that line is. I can't do that alone in a room with my pages. I really need an audience to give me feedback and just kind of read that. So it's a process. Yeah, and, and are you trying to find an audience that is that, that has specific experience with that community? Uh, there are, I have had some in the audience, but I haven't been able to track them down yeah. and hold them against a wall and say, answer my questions. Yeah. It's a problem with theater. I mean, I think that uh, when you hear um, authors, you know, sputtering online or whatever, or, or actually outraged um, readers sputtering online about, you know, oh, you can't police things. All of these questions of trying to look at stereotypes are not actually about policing. It's not about sort of like, you know, watching yourself so you don't, mess up so much as in a sense seeking excellence. 
It's about seeing the world for the wonderful variety of, of places that it is, for the wonderful variety of ways there are to behave and to be. And that should be what the writer is centrally about. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not just something that is some kind of fringe activity you do to make sure you're not stepping on anyone's toes. You should love to look at the world and to find things to say about it. One of the most useful framing devices I ever had uh, for dealing with the idea of um, stereotypes or, or uh, power differentials was that, uh, that everybody exists on a spectrum of axes and that we have um, some axes, we have a point that we are dominant and, and other axes we have a point that we're subordinate and, or some place in the middle. For instance, um, on the axes of gender, you know, if, if we look at gender as, I'm gonna go with gender as binary just for this example, okay? <laughs> just because it's slightly easier because I don't have enough fingers. <laughs> but if we, if we look at the male-female gender binary, um, which is the way all of the census forms are, um, the female end is subordinate in American culture. Uh, male end is dominant. And uh, so on, on that spectrum, I am, I am subordinate. On the sexuality, I am straight, and that is the dominant end of, of that spectrum. Uh, race, I am uh, white. I'm also on the dominant end of that spectrum in most cases in the United States, but not every place. So I think one of the things for me that was very useful in, in looking at that was, um, was realizing that everybody exists in multiple different directions. So when you're building a character, when you're doing your research, obviously there are some places that are where it aligns with you and you, you're like, oh, I totally know this experience. How, when you're stepping outside of that, do you deal with someone do you, do you start into the research project process, whichever pro word you want to use, um, of, of finding out like, where that character exists and what their dominant and subordinate or weaknesses or however you want to frame that yourself. But how do you go about researching the character who is not like you? I mean, I think first and foremost, you start with... Um, even if the character is a villain, I think you start from a standpoint of affection and empathy for the character that you're creating. And then, um, as you throw the stimuli of the world against them, the world that you're creating against them, you reflect on how it's different, how, 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 how those um, stimuli rank on that, on that, on that spectrum of, of axes, which I haven't heard before, but love and will now steal forever. Uh, it's, um, <laughs> let, me, let me go ahead and recommend a book, uh, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the, in the Cafeteria? Yeah, <laughs> I can tell who's read it. <laughs> uh, it's a fantastic, uh, yeah. Everybody read it, just go ahead. And, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? So anyway, sorry, continue on. Yes, you can steal that, but you're not stealing it from me. Oh, right, fantastic. No, um, <laughs> no, but that's, I, I, think it, I think it always comes from, from, from the notion that, I'm sorry, I feel like I've, I've looped around here, so I'm, I'll, I'll shut up in a minute, but um, the, the notion that, that, that you have to abandon your own lens. Like, everybody thinks that their lens is the default. That's part of being human. Like, you see the world from you, right, from back here. And... Um, I think that when you're writing outside of yourself, you, that's the first thing that has to go, the notion that, that your lens is in any way normal, that like you are it, particularly if you're writing from a, you know, from a, from a white cisgendered yeah. point. So. Yeah, the, um, the, the thing that I, I have also felt sometimes is that it's like every character we create is outside our own experience. Mm -hmm. It's just that there are some characters where we're afraid that if we screw it up, we will be called bad people. Uh, and that it's not that we're afraid of getting it wrong, it's that we're afraid of being called racist or sexist or ableist. Um, so one of the things that I've found, and I don't know, I'm curious to see what other tools that you guys used, um, is that I go and I, I read work that is written by the community that I am writing about for the community that I am writing about, um, rather than work that is written by the community that I'm writing about for me. Because as you say, everybody has their own lens, 
and there's jargon and stuff that you internalize that you can drop. It's like when you try, if anybody here is science fiction and fantasy, maybe some of you are. <laughs> yeah, but you know when you're talking to somebody and you drop the word shiny and they're like, <laughs> and, and they know and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm talking to someone and I don't have to explain every single reference that I'm doing. I don't have to code switch for them. So how do you, uh, what, what tools do you, I mean, do you have specific tools that you use when you're trying to, to step outside yourself? Like places that you go, people you hang out with, for knitting me, patterns. For me, a book will always be a secondary source. Mm-hmm. It's always a copy of a copy because even if I write about what it is to be Maggie Seawater, you're seeing what I think it means to be that and by my nature I'm already buffing off the corners and if you came in and actually observed what it was to be Maggie Seawater, it might be a very different version of what I told you. I wouldn't necessarily be telling you wrong, but I would be missing so much of the nuance that, again, our lens is the only lens that is normal for us, so I would ignore many things that to me seem absolutely normal. So there's no replacement, I think, for actually going and seeing a place that you've never been before, or if you're writing about horses, you better be riding a horse. I just think <laughs> the more in-depth you're getting into that subject in the book, the more your hands better be on it. I mean, and there's the question to ask in the first place, why, why have you decided to write about that, the, whatever it is, if you are not actually intimately connected to it? I mean, and there are always psychological reasons, and there's sometimes there are plot reasons or whatever, but, you know, horse riding, obviously, um, just linguistically, you're going to be more on top of it if you actually have done that. That was very punny. Part of that. There you go. Um, but, um, yeah, right. You'll be galloping alone. My but, favorite part uh, is that, that yeah. delayed reaction is... Ten, ten. But okay, I'm going to rein that I'm in. I'm serious. Then it's like, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you have to have the right pedigree, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Do another one. I'm not going to. I hate this already. I hate myself. But um, my point is simply that, you know, honestly, like, the um, being part of the community is part of actually, or, or, or at least understanding how that operates and understanding how uh, people are talking to each other in that community, that's actually part of wanting to write about it in the first place. And I have to say that I know many people will disagree with me, but if the only answer you have for why I'm writing about this is because it's important, it's not your story to tell, and so you should be handing it over to someone else who it is important to them. And I think if you have a well-rounded character with a lot of specific personality traits, then that person will be a person, not a representative of a specific yeah. race or gender yeah. or... Yeah. Right, if, if they have multiple axes yeah. instead of just existing in this one plane, yeah. yeah. And also if they're not the only person of that race in a specific story or world, you know, because that, again, just makes them the representative. Can I tell you, I actually want to loop back to the very first question because we all, well, are looking at teens and write for teens and work with kids. That's actually my least favorite stereotype is the teenage stereotype. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I should have said it before. No, but so say more. Say more. Oh, because that was the first time that actually in my work that I encountered people bringing their own stereotypes to the work because they would read my work and say, I didn't believe this because she doesn't sound like a teen. I was like, what does a teen sound like? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hate you, I'm going to my room. Right. And that's actually one of the things that did piss me off when I was a teenager and make me want to write YA fiction as an adult because I was like, this does not represent me, and at the same time, in many cases, there's the feeling that I'm being cajoled into having interests that I don't have. You know, because I'm being told, oh, well, you should want to go out and dance in a particular way. You yeah. should want to have this experience. As a boy, you're told, you know, you should want to be, like, weirdly horny. And uh, <laughs> whether you are or not, I think that there are other interests and possibilities, especially since so many, like, televised narratives traditionally have had very, very streamlined teen characters. By streamlined, I mean without any interests, without anything other than kind of, like, yeah, I mean, so that they are blanks in which the viewer is supposed to fill themselves in with somehow. But that's when I first started realizing that I really had to stand my ground as far as making my character specific. And yeah. I mean, if you have a specific character and you work hard to make sure that they have nuance, it, if people come and say, this person doesn't sound like a teen, well, too bad, they're wrong. It sounds like this teen. So, but we've all been teens, so we can all use that as an example. <laughs> I, I was I, never a teenager. 
<laughs> you were hatched fully formed that. from a golden <laughs> egg. I think also agency makes a huge difference when writing mm. the other because I feel like that tends to be the role that they get cast as, just the subordinate, the follower, the girl. Mm -hmm. um, and that is really what makes a character interesting is are they in control of their own story, mm -hmm. whether they're the main character or not. Yeah, and I think that, that one of the things that is difficult is that it, it's really easy to give agency to a character when they're your protagonist. Mm -hmm. But when you have a character who is, who is a side character and they are you know, non-white, non-straight, non-cis, they are on one end of that subordinate spectrum. How do you give them that sense of agency without derailing the main plot? Hmm. This is a 60 point question, I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I, I will say this is a, as in like, I, I think about um, what about if you have a, a secondary or tertiary character in the background, uh, if, if the, that level of their identity is important uh, to identifying who they are, like it, it seems to me like uh, describing what a person looks like is sort of insignificant to who they are or describing uh, those things that, that are part of their life until you give them something to do, until they have agency. I don't know necessarily that the tertiary character uh, need, you know, has that much richness well, to them. I mean, I think, like secondary characters. Yeah, here. or secondary characters. But I mean, I, I think, I, mean, I think if, if it's important to have a character that has some backstory as in like, we, we know their uh, sexual identity or, uh, or their race or religious heritage, um, I think at that point, then those things as a writer become important to what decisions that character makes. Mm -hmm. You know, so then it becomes about um, who they are as a person. I actually, one time early on touring for Night Vale, we were looking for a theater in San Diego and we found one and in, in conversing with them, I found out they were run by the Salvation Army. And um, they said something about having a podcast where the lead character is gay. And, I, and they said, you know, because it all has to be family-friendly entertainment. And I said, well, the there's nothing unfamily friendly about our show, like he's gay. Like, it's not like we're describing sex acts or anything like that. And she was like, well, how do you know if he's gay if there's no discussion of sex? And, and, <laughs> and it becomes that thing, and, 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 and it really was, like I had, a, I had the exact same reaction into the phone. And, um, and, uh, and it was a very short conversation, but the thing was is that it does beg the question as in like, what is it, if you're creating a character, like what is it that defines that character? And I think uh, agency is the word I always go to. Like, you know, what decisions are they making? What are they wanting and how are they getting there? And then I think adding all of those other layers are part of how that decision-making process is. But I, I definitely try and avoid describing too much of a character if I know that they're not going to play any role in it. That way people can just put on that character whatever it is they want to put I find on that to. really interesting because it's a really plot-based sort of explanation mm -hmm. to it because if your character's just standing in the room, then they have no agency. And so for me, I always think that it's actually the iceberg rule. Mm -hmm. I want to know that there's more of that character than what I'm seeing currently, no matter what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's the reason why I don't care if I'm watching a movie and the room is full of women, but they, I don't get a sense that there's anything going on. There's nothing specific about them to make me think that they have another story going on. I could be watching a Robert Palmer music video. You guys are too young for that, but... <laughs> I mean, they're just backup dancers. And so anything, any little bit of specificity that tells me that there's more than what I'm seeing, that, to me, is what gives a secondary or a tertiary character mm -hmm. that sense of depth. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually jump on something you just said and call you on a, li a little bit because I, sure. because I disagree with you. Okay, and yeah. that's what makes panels fascinating. Sure. Um, but you said that you, you tend to not describe aspects of the character unless it plays a specific role in a story. Mm -hmm. um, I used to do that and mm -hmm. subscribe to that until I realized that every time I did that because I'm writing in America, mm -hmm. people would assume that my character was white mm -hmm. and, and male and straight. Yeah. So what I have done, begun doing instead is that I describe everybody, but I, I specifically make sure that I am, and what I will do sometimes is that I will make, um, I, I, I describe, like, I, I describe white people with food stuff. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I just had a book that was set in Antigua, and the vast majority of the characters were Caribbean, and although my, 
my main character was a white British woman, at a certain point, I stopped. She, she only marked people when they were white. Mm -hmm. she didn't, she stopped, I stopped marking people when they were people of color because that was the, that was the dominant there. Sure. Um, so I think that one thing, how do you, I'm, I'm curious how you all, each of you approach dealing with the unmarked state. Mm -hmm. Um, do you address that? Do you approach it in your fiction, or do you do you only describe someone when they are uh, when when it is important to the plot? I uh, did a puppet show where the characters were Japanese American, and it was completely unrelated to the story. It was about sandwiches. <laughs> um, and somebody actually asked, "Well, why are these characters Japanese American?" as if a, like, it was an artistic choice, and my answer was just, their parents were. <laughs> I am using that. <laughs> Sorry, is that cultural appropriation if I take that from you? It's joke appropriation. Thanks. I'm totally cool with it. Right. That's just quoting then. Uh, so yeah, it's weird when you make a choice, it becomes a choice, as opposed to just, you know, another random detail. Um, I guess I don't really have a point with that. No, I, I think you did, which is that, that it's, uh, that, that people assume that if you call something out that is that not white, that it has to yeah. have significance, which is, I feel like, the danger of not calling it out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm moderating and I'm supposed to be provoking you guys to talk yeah. <laughs> instead of me talking. I so someone say, I thought, I rarely describe any of my characters mm -hmm. ever and I actually have been trying to work better on that because I have discovered there is multiple defaults which is also that they assume that your characters are white, straight, and super hot and skinny. That yeah. yep. is what it is. And so it seems somehow hateful to me that you would have to go and describe someone's weight specifically, but mm -hmm. otherwise they're going to assume that they're a slender, model-esque read. And so I've been trying to get better about all of my descriptions throughout because it's true. Otherwise, it's not that you are you're really not providing a blank slate. You are actually telling them that your person is white and skinny and tall or whatever because in unless you modify it. Otherwise, that's what it's gonna be. Yeah. yeah. And I think it is a little different when you're doing audio because you have the actor to mm -hmm. bring some. Mm -hmm. Sort of, although 99% of our show is just Cecil just talking about that's things. That's true. So it's, I mean, I, and I wanna Cecil. say real quick, because I see. <laughs> um, no, and I, and I agree with you, because I think I misspoke. I was like saying like I just nullify all characters. Okay. Like everybody's just a blank slate and everybody's called Bob Jones or whatever. Um, <laughs> No, because I, I do think that that is important. I do think describing things in a, in a finding a new way to give mm -hmm. people an outlet. Like, I mean, I think naming a character without ever describing her, uh, naming a character Tamika Flynn allows people to lay something new on it as opposed to just, you know, Jennifer Smith. And I think that, you know, there, there, is, there is that way of setting up language um, yeah. and setting up names and setting up the way somebody acts and just finding a new way to do that. I think I was only just saying, like, not super exploring the person's culture until I knew that that character had, uh, you know, a mission or a drive, right. you know. But, but giving, yeah, definitely giving something that, that says, you know, when you see a TV show and there are women in the room, like, that matters. It, it, it fucking matters a lot. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, having that kind of thing. But... Uh, having an audio podcast makes that a little bit of a different thing. Yeah. Um, it's really it. scary when you frown, like you just frowned at him and I'm like, oh God, you ne never frown at me. <laughs> I just want to say, you have a very punitive looking frown. Which, which one of us? You. Me? Yes. Did I frown at you? No, you frowned at him. I oh. saw it and I thought, oh, thank God it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty years of live theater, um, mostly with a puppet over my head. Okay, so so when you you've gone to all of this work, uh, you're, you've done your research. How do you know when to actually start write, writing? When do you hit that comfort zone of now I can put this character down on paper? Taya, you leaned forward, so I'm going to make you start. I, I did, and, and I drew breath and everything, and now I forgot what I was going to say. And it's really I, awkward. No, um, I, I I think that at a, at a certain point. Um, I don't know how, how, how the others uh, 
feel obviously, but, but um, at, a, at a certain point, you have to have something concrete on the page to change, even if it's only to change. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I think that when you, when you I, I start to write when I um, envision a particular scene with this, with this character, and when it becomes so real to me that to not put it on paper means actually not having it exist as any part of reality at all. And that's when, when, when I start to write, even if I don't feel that I have enough um, because you can build on that, you can subtract from it, but, but it, it sort of needs to become this actual thing. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. I think just generally when writing, if you wait until you feel you're ready. <laughs> you a long time. That's, that's not yeah. a thing that exists. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but on the, other, on the other hand, I would say that, you know, in the case of some of these things where you really are trying to explore communities or whatever that are not, um, your own, there is a, I think that hesitancy also actually can make sense. Not diving in does make sense. And I mean, I would say two things spring to mind for me. One is, and this actually connects with a question someone asked, one is when you feel like you, you could tell stories about these characters that you are not going to tell, which I think is a peculiar idea, but like when you say, okay, this community I know, know so well, there are all these other ideas piling up, and, but I'm not actually going to use them. That I think is actually a good sign. Like that, the sense that you're gonna, that you're willing to throw something away because you know more than you um, need to say. That's a good sign. The other thing is something that Co Booth said, um, which I thought was really good. Which was she says, you should never um, write about a community where you don't understand the subdivisions in that community. Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting thought. I'd never thought of it that way before. But mm. you know, think of you know any given example in your own writing, and you start to see. Wait, that kind of makes sense. Who said that again? Co Booth, okay. uh, YA author, uh, Tyrell. Um, anyway. See. Yeah, no, I just I'm like that's really good, and I don't want to misquote yeah. when I totally steal that. But I mean, think about, to use your pretty neutral example in this room, think about like sci-fi or fantasy mm -hmm. or whatever. You can always tell when someone from outside the sci-fi or fantasy community is writing about that community or those communities because precisely they have an inability to understand how the debates within these communities go on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if you can make those distinctions, suddenly you're already a lot further along. Is steampunk fantasy or science fiction? Right. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but similar to that, my father once told me that you're not fluent in a language until you can tell a joke. And I think uh. that's knowing what things are actually funny within the community is yeah. probably another good benchmark. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I do is I, I just go ahead and start writing and I it's, it's less that I know when to stop researching and more when I know that I need to go back and continue researching because, because I, I, don't, I can't tell the jokes. Yeah, it is exactly those, those things. It's, I'm like, I don't, I don't actually know what someone would have in their handbag you know, if, if they don't have hair. It's like, what do, you, do you keep lotion in your bag to, for the scalp dandruff? <laughs> I don't know. Someone feel free to, I have no idea. Um, but you know, it's that kind of thing where we're going backwards. I realize I don't know the details. Sometimes I can mark it and keep going, but a lot of times it's like, nope, gotta go back to the books. Back when I was a terrible writer, when I was younger, I used to start with characters in mythology, and now I won't start any novel until I know where it takes place, because as I become older, I realize how much I was a product of my childhood in the places that I literally grew up and the stuff around it. And so now I will not form a character until I know where it was that their feet were planted when I was writing the story. So it's very similar to what you said about community, but it's geographical place definitely for me. Yeah, yeah, and that, I'm glad you said that because I think one of the things that a lot of people also do is that um, that they will say, you know, oh, this person is this person is uh, American or this person is European, and I'm like, so I'm I'm American. I'm from the South. Uh, my husband is from Hawaii. Um, we are culturally very different. <laughs> Very, very different. We had this whole thing because we asked questions different way, different ways. I front, I, I, in the South, it is um, putting someone in a position where they have to say no is incredibly rude. And so you state your problem, 
so that they can volunteer. <laughs> and it's, 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 not, it's not actually a passive-aggressive thing. It, it is, it's really, you know, if they volunteer, great. If you actually really need help, then you follow up with, if it's urgent, then you follow up with the, the request. But you don't ever start with a question, the, the request, because that means it's urgent. And he always was like, no, you start with the request, and then you explain the details later. And, and I That's would be wrong. like... That's wrong. He's wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Because I would be like, you know, the box, uh, the, the, I can't reach the top shelf. I'll get a chair now. <laughs> and he would be like, you know, when you get a chance, can you... And when you get a chance, can you help me? Is That's just like, this is really urgent. <laughs> for me, <laughs> it's like um, so. So I think that what you're talking about with with knowing knowing where they are in a region is really really specific, and also knowing like education level and all of these things. But also like what you said just now, it's there's so much insight into the cultural particularities, and that's the kind of detail when I was talking about like not policing yourself, but instead finding richness. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing. If someone reads a book about well, what's the South like? Oh, well, they you know. Um, uh, corn dogs or whatever. Yeah. You know, I don't we know do not. Are, you know. <laughs> <laughs> corn bread, corn dogs are a whole different thing. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Well, exactly. I'm from well, but it is. This but, does answer the question about do stereotypes have a hint of truth? Because right there, haven't we all heard the phrase Southern hospitality? And is that not a stereotype? And is that not what you described, but in a specific way? Well, but I, but I think that actually, oh, well, a couple of things about that. One is that I think that stereotypes are always based on various power relations that either admit truth in them or not, but however they're structured. But the other thing being that I really do feel, I mean, I guess my, my bigger point is that the specifics that will bring that alive or animate it, or on the other hand, prove it wrong, those specifics are the important thing. Yeah. And th those specifics are not going to be easy to find out. You know what I mean? Because if I read a book about the South, I will find out about, you know, the national parks there or something, not about the particularities of how conversation goes, which means how dialogue goes, how characters interact, the really fascinating stuff. Yeah, and a lot of times the blind spots that you have are very specifically about your own culture because you have internally, because you assume it's normal. Mm -hmm. uh, and you assume it's, like, I had no idea that that was not the way people asked questions. I was just like, why is he never getting the box down for me? <laughs> <laughs> I, true story, I went home and um, I'm like, I, I went home and my mom said, um, there's a bag of apples on the counter. And I said, okay, I should have a pie out for dinner. <laughs> and my husband was like, don't you think she was just offering you an apple? I'm like, no. <laughs> then she would have said, would you like an apple? <laughs> There's a bag of apples on the counter in the kitchen. <laughs> what is not clear about this? <laughs> um, so, so now we've, we've been talking about you know, how to prep for stuff, and then, and then you, know, you, you write the thing. Hopefully, and um, and then then you've got your own fails. Uh, how do you spot the thing that you've written that is damaging to the story? Uh, because you you've created you know the, the joke that somebody else has already told fifty bajillion times, um, the the accidental stereotype. How do you how do you find those damaging? How do you spot the damage and recognize that it's hurting you? I think people tell you. Yeah. yeah. Ideally, you have people whose feedback you trust and get a lot of feedback from a lot of different perspectives because people will react to different things differently. And don't be afraid to be wrong and mm -hmm. own it and make the changes that are responsible and stand by the things that you think are true to the character. Uh, you know, even if they do embody the stereotype, I am great at math. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I own it. Like, some things, fine. And so just pick but your wait. battles and just be responsible. But wait, you're a girl. I know. <laughs> and you're great at math. And wow. spunky. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
I also think that it's the most insidious stereotypes that I find in my own stuff. I can discover they're super, super nuanced because I like to think of myself as being a pretty open-minded person, but my, that means that my blinkers are really close to my eyes. And so I have to read my work. And normally my work mostly reads like a fever dream. I'm aware of this. <laughs> and, and I can tell the parts where I start to flag because you start to see my research and you start to see me being really careful about putting things out there and making sure everyone knows what I'm talking about. Do you see what's happening? I did my work right here. And that's when I can tell not that that paragraph is wrong, but I'm treating that character or that situation wrong because I'm not giving them the same kind of humanity that I would to any other character. Anybody else want to jump on that? Nope. Okay. Uh, actually, I'll, say, I'll <laughs> follow on from actually a couple of things that Liz said, which is um, in general, I think it's a great practice to read your writing to others, specifically not just to have them read it, but to, I and mean, you were talking about performing for others and, you know, the same for writers. Um, mainly because as you go into the session and you're about to read this to one friend or two friends or whatever else, you will start to feel fear and loathing about particular parts of the writing. And you will be amazed. I mean, not just for things about stereotypes, but how many lines you scratch out in advance of a reading as you suddenly realize that whole pages and paragraphs really can disappear in time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's some, don't you agree that there's like a real truth? That writing is about fear and loathing, is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But also I think it's because you're seeing your work through their eyes, oh, you know, in that moment and realizing that they're bored as hell. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read all of my things out loud uh, for exactly, and to, preferably to an audience for exactly that reason. Um, because yeah, you, you and uh, just the, I, I was reading out loud and I'm like, the road through the forest wound through the trees. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> the road through the forest, huh? <laughs> through trees. <laughs> Because you can't skim, also. Um, and I, I think that the, the part of that is also stepping away from it for, for, for a good while. Yeah. Because I think that when you're, when you're in the middle of writing, especially if you've been revising for a long time, there's this thing that happens where you, you and the work become one, and you sort of you know what the next line is without, without being able to, to you know, put that you know, moderator kind of lens on, and then you, you just sort of coast through the mistakes, whether they're, you know, whether they're grammatical or rhetorical or, you know, stereotypes or, or any sort of mistake. It just, it's something that you glide over because you know what's coming. And so if you give yourself this distance of time, yeah. it's suddenly like, who wrote this? <laughs> I also think it's easy to fail with your own culture, especially if you're a young writer and you haven't written a lot of things, to actually be too close to something that you know really well. Like if you have a hobby, I used to fail by putting in lots of Irish music stuff and it was so much my norm that my I needed to explain my culture. And it seemed, I was really offended about this. Like, well, how? of course the harp fits in the trunk. I said she put it in the car, what do you think? And it was, I needed to say, the harp is this tall. This is why she's able to carry it. And so teaching yourself to get outside your own head that way is super useful. Also, having another set of eyes, like you said, reading out loud, you can see their eyes glaze over because they don't understand. Or sometimes your editor says, did you notice that you describe cars a lot? But, I, mean, I, wanna, I mean, the other side of that is if you are, if you do have the specific interest in that kind of thing, um, but also, if you know, we're talking in terms of like cultures or communities or ethnicities or whatever, isn't there a level at which you should be able to not have to describe everything as if there's a, an audience that is going to be ignorant of that? The great example of this, actually, there's a great Juno Diaz quote that's floating around um, online right now where he goes, you know, people will read uh, Lord of the Rings or whatever, and, you know, there are all these made-up fantasy terms and everyone loves it. The moment you put in, um, a, you know, a phrase in, uh, in Spanish, everyone is like, oh, you're getting all political. You know what I mean? <laughs> what does this actually mean? And everyone is offended. Oh, wait, there are terms in Spanish. That means that you're doing something unintelligible, but if it's an elven, Elvish, I'm so sorry. Um, anyway, if it's an Elvish, no one complains because some, somehow that is fine. And I think that it actually, that's a really good point. Like, shouldn't he be able to have stuff in 
Spanish. It's true, but I think it's a tightrope. It depends on your audience. I think the huge difference between because my first book was published and four people read it, I think, and then the Raven Cycle actually pays for my mortgage, so thanks for that. And the big <laughs> difference is how accessible I have made it. And so finding a way to actually bring people into that world without sacrificing specificity and without sounding like you're writing an IKEA instructional manual, right. finding that balance is the key to being commercial, which is this is super geeky. I really enjoy the idea of being specific and commercial it's a different panel <laughs> yeah so I want to touch on something that, that Liz mentioned briefly which is which is the idea of owning the things that you've screwed up after the the work has already come out how do you deal with it when you when someone calls you on a fail like when you have totally screwed up and I, I will I will start with my own example to give you guys time to think because I expect someone to talk besides me <laughs> Um, I, wrote, uh, I wrote a short story um, called uh, Weaving Dreams. You can uh, find the entire thing on my site, um, in which I had, uh, I had a character who was, um, was two different types. Uh, it was a, set in the United States, Cherokee, uh, Indian, um, hidden people meeting... Um, uh, Irish little people, hidden people, I'm forgetting all of the terms right now. Um, but I, I had one character who, who I referred to as a half-breed. And, uh, and he, was, he was a little crazy. Um, and did not, and, and thought that I was playing against the stereotype of um, that the only, the only person who is good is the person who has some some European blood in him. But what I was actually doing was playing with, into the stereotype of uh, that, that, you know, mixed miscegenation. Yeah. Thank you, yes. Uh, led to, led to mental, sorry, mental deformities. Um, so, and someone called me on it. Uh, and the story was already out. Fortunately, it was published electronically. Uh, and the editor allowed me to rewrite it, and we republished a, a different version of it, uh, in which I went back and like did a whole bunch more homework uh, and, and wound up completely rewriting the story. Most of the time, I don't have the opportunity to do that. Uh, most of the time, I can just say, well, I screwed up. Won't do that again. Thank you for pointing it out. What do you do, and if you've got an example since I've just uh, but you can actually read both versions and, and the dialogue that happened around it, um, if you're curious. Uh, but have you guys encountered something where you've been called on it? And Readers have asked me why my books are so whitewashed. I looked at my books. They're whitewashed. I decided not to do that anymore. That is what I have done. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when you are faced with criticism and it's legit, you look at your work and... You do better. I mean, you were fortunate that you could go back and change yours, but most of the time you can't, you can't actually go back. And so you hope that people will go and see that your future works have incorporated that everyone's always changing and hopefully for the better. I mean, we all have grandparents that got worse, let's face it. But you hope that people will see that you're, you know, making steps forward. We've definitely received, uh, yeah, we've definitely received feedback via email or people in person or Twitter and Tumblr and things of... Uh, and I think all oh, you can, the, the number one thing, the most important thing I've found is just receiving it, you know, taking it in. I, I don't respond to everybody. Some people I have before, uh, but, you know, you, I think the most important thing is to take it in. Uh, I think there's so many people, you see this a lot with, for some reason, like white male comedians have in this a lot where they go on a giant Twitter rant about being told that they can't use certain words or whatever. And I think the, the number one thing is just to, take in that this is something that somebody feels and understanding that that's the most real thing in the world is a personal reaction. So I think taking that in and responding, I think one specific example, and it, it's minor, but it, it's not the only thing we've received, but it was very early on, there was something about you know having a podcast where you have a single narrator talking to a group of people and Cecil would say, we had wrote it in the script, and he would say, ladies and gentlemen, mm. And it was a, we, and we just, we got, uh, you know, messages from people being like, that's, that's really, it's very binary, it's very limiting, it's very restricted and, and uh, isolating for people who don't identify as either. Um, 
or both. And so I, uh, yeah, and it, and, it, and it actually begged the question of like, that's actually a stupid phrase to use not only for that, but just for lazy writing in the sense of like, what radio host have I ever heard really say ladies and gentlemen? Like there's just, that's just a, that's a weird kind of like old timey MC of a vaudeville show or something. Like I don't really know why that phrase is in there. So it was just a way of like quietly just being like, well, let's just stop using that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one I've been training out of my own vocabulary. Yeah. It's really hard to get rid of. Sure, yeah, I have a lot of those. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that those moments are really gifts and opportunities to engage somebody in that conversation. Like they are coming to you mm -hmm. to educate you. Take that gift and listen to what they have to say, and ask them for specifics and learn more and do better. Yeah. Also, yes. Liz said something that was really good earlier about knowing when you are true to your characters as well. Because the thing is that you will get good feedback, you will also get really bad feedback. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just take it all in mm -hmm. equally because there's too many voices all going into your head. Yeah. And sometimes, like, if you come from that culture and you know what the truth is, you have to stick to your bones. And it's easier then to stick to it if you know it for sure because that is you. It's harder with every single circle that you step out of it. So at a certain point, you have to just decide, all right, I did my work, I'm confident in this for now. I'm listening, but I'm not gonna take your advice. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And I think the other thing I noticed too, just in, as I went from being just a person who did downtown performance art and had a day job to just suddenly fielding like emails from lots and lots and lots of listeners, one of the things I noticed very early on, and the ladies and gentlemen thing was a very early on thing that we received, and there there were two distinct types of people, uh, two t different types of tones that you get, and which is one is the person who says, hey, I hate to bother you, but you know, there's this thing where if you use this, and then they give you a long explanation, it's very helpful, and some people are outright uh, up, upset and the tone is angry. And Spunky you girl! Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and you do have to learn how to filter that part too, is to say like, I, you can't be upset that somebody is upset with you. You just have to find what is meaningful in what they're saying because oftentimes if somebody is angry, there's probably a reason mm -hmm. and to not react immediately to it. Yeah. yeah, I think that is very important advice there. Um, you know, people definitely have a right to their anger. Yeah. And especially if you've screwed up. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to end with um, the last... Wow, we are right at time. Uh, sorry that we don't have time for follow-up questions, but I'm going to try to get the last two in here. Uh, the first one is, um, which I'm, I'm kind of just going to take myself. I will tell you what the second one is so you can be thinking about it. How's that? Um, examples of uh, non-Faley white people, um, but, but because I think one of the things that happens a lot is that, uh, that we hold up, oh, look at this white person who has written well in this other culture. What I'd like you to actually think about is examples of people that we should be reading who are from communities that are often marginalized and, and offer those examples instead. Sorry that I'm skipping the non faily white people. There's just not a lot of them. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really, really love Francisco Stork's writing, Marcelo in the Wait, Real World. Good, um, but I'm gonna- Oh, you're not, you don't, you don't want our opinions. I, no, I want, I want your opinions, but I'm gonna answer the other question to give you time to think. I wasn't I will, expecting- I was on a brain vacation, I'm sorry. No, 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 I, I talked a lot, so. So th Don't I was gonna, frown I, at me. <laughs> Here, I will, I will do, I will instead, I won't frown at you, I will do what my mom does. I will, I will kill you with, with I, I can quiet you to death. <laughs> Southern. <laughs> um, so the, the, while you guys are thinking of your examples, um, what can you guys, what can readers do to encourage publishers to publish these things? Um, funny thing, a lot of them are already being published. Uh, they're not turning up in bookstores. Um, uh, so for instance, in science fiction and fantasy, uh, the gender split is roughly, uh, 51% men, 47% women of, of published work. Uh, when you go into the bookstore, because I've been doing this, um, 
doing uh, airport surveys, eight women, 108 books, only eight of which are written by women. Uh, and one of the things is that the, the booksellers, the librarians, don't know, you know, they just have titles and authors. They don't get lists that are split out by gender or sexuality or so going in and requesting books by specific authors, uh, going in and requesting those. And I know you said not just buying them, but actually making the request at a physical bookstore because that is where the word of mouth happens and they will notice that uh, and, and that is how it starts back. The other thing is writing to publishers. Um, writing an actual letter, email is fine too, but paper letters, they don't get them very often. And, um, and, but writing email, uh, even open, open letters, but writing them and saying, you know, you published, I, I, I'm looking to your list and I really want to be reading and I don't see it on your list. That makes a difference. Um, but basically speaking out. Is, is the only way that they know. All right, you ready for your examples? Sure. <laughs> okay, I will start with my example, um, uh, which is I just finished reading Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho. Um, and Zen is, is uh, she is writing outside of her, her experience because uh, her main character is a uh, young black man in Regency England who is the sorcerer to the crown in Regency England. This book is so good. Um, uh, and uh, Zen is, I uh, believe, Chinese-English? Malaysian. Malaysian, thank you. Thank you, whoever actually knows that, I should have looked her up. Um, Malaysian. Uh, so it, but it's a phenomenal book and I highly recommend it. Sorcerer to the crown. Um, I'll use uh, the book I just finished reading a couple weeks ago, uh, which is uh, Tanahazi Coates' uh, Between the World and Me. If you have a chance to read this, it is a short read and it is a powerful read and it is an absolutely uh, stunning piece of writing. So not only just for, uh, for seeing the world when, uh, from, from a unique perspective, for me I just I felt like as a writer I just got so much out of it about structure and language. Um, it's stunningly beautiful and I recommend it. Oh, it's called Between the World and Me by ta Coates. Uh, I really like the books of Paul Beatty. He wrote White Boy Shuffle and Tough, T-U-F-F. Uh, he deals a lot with race, but he also, he's a black man, but his Japanese women characters are spot on. Like they are, he is great at writing outside of his experience. Paul Beatty. And um, I would say uh, a book that I read recently that really struck me for this is uh, Kieran Desai's The Inheritance of Loss, which is actually a kind of an intergenerational story taking place sort of between, um, you know, like northern India and then also in New York City and stuff with a range of characters and just an incredible view into a, a whole set of lives. Oh, sorry, The Inheritance of Loss. And I think her name is D-E-S-A-I. Um, I just recently finished reading um, a, a Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James. Um, which, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right, he does, that's right. He's local. Um, and, uh, and I completely forgot. Um, but, uh, and I got really excited about it too. But it's a, it's a, it's a multiple perspective um, book and it's, it's absolutely incredible. And then um, also, um, Ishiguro is always amazing for, for writing across difference, just like, Every single one of his books is, is completely different. He inhabits so many different kinds of voices. It's, it's, um, it's, it's stunning. So, yeah. I already shouted mine out before, but I love Marcelo in the Real World by Francisco Stork. He does really amazing characters. He's a Mexican-American writer, and also he deals with the narrator of that is possibly Asperger's, but is never labeled, and that is my absolute favorite way to see any kind of mental health issues actually portrayed in a book, and in fact, any almost everything I don't like to see labels in the books. I just want to see it out there as the character living their life. So I really love it. I think it's a really beautiful book. Yeah. All right. Marcello in the real world. 
It's old. Okay. We are, uh, we're out of time. Thank you all so much. Thank you for being a great audience. I actually wanted to say just one thing, just not related to the panel, but just because this is the last event I know um, I'm all actually doing other than a signing, but I just wanted to say how much uh, the uh, presenters here are enjoying this conference in particular. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in particular how, uh, like, the audience is making a, just it's such a huge difference. Like, we really feel like you are people that we love. You know what I mean? I, and I just think it feels great. And that concludes this episode of the NerdCon Stories podcast. To keep up with news about NerdCon Stories 2016, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr, or check us out at nerdcon.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to be awesome.